Thank you for joining me again, everyone. Firstly, I would like to send out a massive congratulations to Bethan from the Seeing Red podcast on the birth of her baby girl. From everyone here connected to True Crime Fix, we want to wish them all the very best with their new edition. I'm going to start this week with a little bit of business. True Crime Fix is now on Patreon. If you would like to know more, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. If you do, you'll be able to get your fix a little bit earlier. Just like Vicky and Lisa, who have joined since the last episode. Thank you for your assistance in keeping this podcast going and free for the masses. So that is www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. And now on to this week's episode. Do you believe in the paranormal? And Wes and I were, you know, we were touching and we went and we put our hands on her to start praying and it was like, she's gone. She's on the other side of the parking lot. Like literally, like for lack of a better word, what the hell just happened? Like whatever this was, was from the pits of hell. Are you on a constant quest to find cryptids? And all three of them were merging on the car. And I looked over and I looked up and it was kind of looking down at us. And it reminded me of a monkey. It it got down like it was going to charge us. It was so big, I felt like it could have grabbed the side of the car and flipped it over. Is your mind swirling with weird conspiracy theories? Throughout the summer of 2001, we knew about the 9-11 attack. We absolutely knew about it, and we talked about it all the time. Your family might think you're crazy, but we have good news for you. You're not alone. The Confessionals is a podcast where witnesses of the unexplained share their personal encounter stories. From UFOs and Bigfoot to hauntings, demons, and conspiracies. Come join us every Tuesday for a mysterious and creepy new episode. You can find The Confessionals on your favorite podcast player and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm your host, Tony Merkel. Let's go. Hey, it's Barry. How are you? Let me ask you this. Do you like to hear stories of murder, deceit, and unbelievable true crime? If you do, then you want Extraordinary Stories Podcast. This girl here will be dead by 6pm. I will blow her head off. You cannot terrorise me anymore. Do you want to hear stories of incredible human survival? Stories of some of the most inspiring people who have ever lived. I think she did what any of us would do in that moment. She played dead. She lay there and she pretended to have died. That was what saved her. If you want stories of sex, death, murder, survival and real human stories told with humour but also respect, then you want extraordinary Stories podcast. Imagine turning up to your own funeral in a wig. (laughs) Listen to Extraordinary 
Stories podcast told by a Scottish man in a thick Scottish accent. Get it on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Okay, goodbye. Let's get it on. Let's do it. Let's get it over. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello everyone, and welcome back to our 16th case together. Just a quick reminder to everyone, if you've enjoyed the show so far, Please subscribe on your chosen podcast app and you'll get all of the new episodes automatically downloading for you upon release. So this case today returns to the subject that unfortunately is far too common for my podcasts and that is one of stalking and obsession. First we had Sophia in episode 1 and the awful things that she had to go through and then we had Molly McLaren A story which still to this day chokes me up emotionally every time I think of it. This case today is again one that follows the same sort of approach. I'm going to do one thing today which I've never done before on an episode. My dad was a policeman in the Metropolitan Police between December 1968 and July 1999, serving in West London so I've been raised to respect figures of authority. But today, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be critical of the police's handling of this case, so I apologise in advance for that. To this day, I still do not understand the psyche of people when relationships go wrong. I even tried watching Love Island this summer for research purposes, of course. Anyway, without further introduction... This is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this case has been written in the memory of Rana Faruqi. Rana Caroline Faruqi was born on the 12th of September 1967 in Eton, Buckinghamshire. She was the middle daughter of Shuja Yudin and Carol Faruqi. Her brother was Simon, who was five years older than her and her sister was Gemma, who was 12 years younger than her. The family lived in the small village of Farnham Common. Farnham Common is a village in Buckinghamshire, three miles north of Slough and 14 miles away from London Heathrow Airport. It has an area of about two and a half miles and a population of about 6,000 people. Despite being small in stature, The village has had some Hollywood notoriety, with the local Burnham Beaches being used as the film set for some of the Harry Potter films, including Order of the Phoenix and Deathly Hallows Part 1. 
Rana was a very strong-minded individual who was described by her family as being great fun and always challenging herself to do the best she could. She was constantly making her family laugh. Rana had a major passion for riding as she'd learnt to do so almost as soon as she could walk. She owned a horse by the name of Toby whom she had told friends was the only man that she needed in her life. Rana was a high-flying business analyst in the IT department at the Hyundai car dealership in the town of High Wycombe. But she loved nothing more than to escape the pressures of her job and spent a lot of her free time at the Jennings Farm stables in Burnham, which was a short journey away from her home in the village of Farnham Common. Rana also rode Toby competitively at the equestrian meetings at Windsor Park Equestrian Club, where the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, is the president. She was a very good rider, and the walls of her small cottage were adorned with pictures of her with horses and numerous trophies that she had won. Rana was very much a daddy's girl, and had Shuja wrapped around her little finger. Carol stated that her husband, although well and truly manipulated by his daughter, was a very positive influence on her life. Rana was very content with her perceived spinster lifestyle and was not looking for any serious relationship. Then, in October 2001, tragedy struck the Faruqi family when Shuja was diagnosed with cancer and it was a battle that unfortunately he would not survive, succumbing to the illness in April 2002 at the age of 65. His passing was very sudden and hit Rana almost as hard as her mum. Carol and Shuja were married in 1961 in Aylesbury, with him passing not long before their 40th wedding anniversary. Her mum found the grieving process very difficult. Rana struggled to come to terms with her grief and had to take an extended period of time off work, not returning again until October 2002. Rana's emotions were still very raw, leaving her very vulnerable. It was during this time that she finally let her guard down. Rana had continued where she'd left off at work and one morning shortly after she'd returned, she had a meeting regarding improvements to the IT systems. The session was being led by consultant, 41-year-old Stephen Griffiths. After the session, the trainer went up to Rana and introduced himself. Griffiths was six foot three inches tall, with short dark hair, as well as a trimmed goatee. Griffiths asked Rana if she'd be up for going out on a date with him to which she politely declined, but the two did exchange numbers before he left. Over the coming weeks, the pair spoke regularly. Griffiths, who had a charming demeanour, used the contact to help Rana overcome the grief that she was feeling while still asking her out a few times over that period. Again, Rana would politely decline his offers as she had told her family that she did not find him attractive. Towards the end of October, tragedy struck for Griffiths as well, 
as he lost his mother Anna to illness. He called Rana devastated. Due to Rana just having gone through the grieving process, she was very supportive of Griffiths. Griffiths asked her if she minded attending the funeral with him in Tannyfrun, which is a town in North Wales near the city of Wrexham. She agreed to attend the service with him and, as a result, shortly after, commonly bonding over grief, the two started a relationship together. The relationship progressed quickly with Griffiths moving into Rana's cottage in Farnham Common weeks after they started dating as he said the lease was up on his rented flat and he needed somewhere to stay. Rana had agreed to help him out on a temporary basis and said that he could stay there for three weeks. Rana only had a small cottage and Griffiths started to take it over with all of his belongings. Every time that Rana challenged him about the amount of things that he was moving in, Griffiths would get angry and say, We are a couple now. You cannot get precious about your property. This is hopefully going to be our home soon. For a while, the couple's relationship seemed happy, as neighbours would see them leaving for work together, and the perception was that they were a very attractive couple. In reality, though, Rana was beginning to spend more and more time at her mother's house, it was noticed by her family that she was trying to avoid Griffiths. Carol recalled confronting her one day, asking her if everything was okay between the two of them. Rana replied that yes it was, and bearing in mind that Carol was still grieving for the loss of her husband, she did not push the subject any further. The Faruqi family invited Griffiths over for Christmas Day in 2002, and the couple arrived Christmas morning. Griffiths made sure that he would leave a lasting impression on the family that day, turning up how Rana's brother Simon would describe as perfectly maintained in all designer clothes. But it wasn't only the appearance of Stephen Griffiths that the family noticed. Griffiths turned up, his arms loaded with presents for Rana. All designer, all very expensive, lavish gifts. Gemma described how the family all sat there very uncomfortably while Rana opened all of the gifts that Griffiths had bought her. Alarm bells slowly started to ring as the two of them had only been dating for a couple of months. Stephen Griffiths loved to give the impression that he was well off and loved his possessions, and it was now feared that he felt that Rana was becoming one of those. Psychologist Emma Kenny addressed this in an episode of Britain's Darkest Taboos, stating that people who see others as if they are possessions feel then that they have the right to treat that person how they like and dispose of that person when they feel the time is appropriate. Despite his outwardly charming demeanour, Griffiths was starting to bully Rana at home and he got through her emotional defences. Although he was not assaulting Rana physically 
her family picked up on the fact that he was starting to control her psychologically. She was a different person. The once lively, fun, outgoing, ambitious woman that they all knew was slowly disappearing. It all came to a head at the start of March 2003 when Rana visited her mother at home. Rana made it clear to her mother she was extremely reluctant to go back home again. Carol asked her why she felt like that. Finally, Rana confessed that Griffiths was becoming more and more controlling. They were rowing a lot and Griffiths was losing his temper over the smallest of things. He is scaring me, she admitted to her mother. She then revealed that he wanted to control her life. She told her mother how one night Griffiths had cooked fish for dinner, but Rana hated fish. That night she was also late home from work after a meeting had overrun, and the meal was cold by the time she got there. She was so terrified that he would lash out at her, she ate every bite of it and was violently sick afterwards. Rana also told her mum that Griffiths had chastised her, yelling, I don't know why anyone would love you, Rana. You are so difficult to live with. Carol sat there stunned. The strong-willed, independent woman was now having her life dictated to her. This wasn't her daughter at all. She needed to get out of that relationship. She told Rana so matter-of-factly. It worried Carol immensely to think of her daughter in fear in her own home. The problem is that although they had only been in a relationship for five months, Griffiths had his hooks in her. On the 14th of March 2003, Rana had had enough and plucked up the courage to tell Griffiths that their relationship was over and asked him to leave the property. Griffiths refused and Rana had to call Thames Valley Police. When they arrived, Griffiths handed over the keys and left, but did so, leaving all of his possessions behind. By the time Rana broke the news to her mum in early April, Rana was almost back to the person that she was before the ordeal. Her mum said, She came bounding into the house one sunny morning and I had not seen her that happy in months. I did it, she said. I finally did it. The rest of Rana's family were also ecstatic, relieved that she was finally out of that controlling environment. But Griffiths was furious about the breakup and had no intention of disappearing. So that Rana could have as little contact with him as possible, all of the things that had been left at her cottage were moved into Carol's garage so that he could collect them from there. Carol advised her daughter if she saw Griffiths, then she would just have to be civil to him. Neither woman could have guessed what Griffith's next move was going to be. Carol recalled the next time she saw Griffiths, shortly after his belongings were moved into her property. 
The doorbell went. I went to the door and it was him. I presumed that he was just here to collect his things. But he came in and he got his laptop and went through a PowerPoint presentation. It was all to do with how he was going to win her back. Carol remembered that she looked at the presentation in stunned disbelief. The title of the document was How to Get Rana Back. There were pictures on there of Rana's horse Toby and bullet points outlining how they were going to start a business together. How they were going to buy a house with enough land for Toby to roam free. Carol again felt uncomfortable in his presence, but he insisted that she watch the whole thing. I can remember saying to him, Stephen, I really don't want to see this. If anybody should see it, it should be Rana. But quite honestly, you've split up now, and always when there's a split, one person gets hurt more in that relationship, and it just happens to be you this time. Just notch it up to experience and move on. It was then that Griffith's demeanour changed. Suddenly he just flipped out. How could she do this to me? He bellowed at the top of his voice, in such a loud voice that Carol retreated backwards towards the door. She tried to calm him down, terrified that he would become physically aggressive with her. Carol had never seen him like this and this was an insight into the behaviour that her daughter had been tolerating for the past months. Polly Clarkson in her book Stalkers states, and I quote, Carol was badly shaken up but was in two minds about telling Rana about the incident. She did not want to put her under any more stress. She knew how much it would scare her so she decided to keep the incident to herself. Stephen Griffiths finally left the house four and a half hours after he had arrived, but this was identified as one of the turning points for him in his pursuit for Rana. So I'm just going to take a quick pause there just to acknowledge what has gone on. Griffiths was of course an IT consultant, and as part of his job is used to presenting things in a PowerPoint format but he has used a PowerPoint presentation to try and show Rana's mum how he's going to win her back. This is once again going back to the way that Rana was perceived by him. Two of the most common purposes of a PowerPoint presentation is for when you're applying for promotion or if you're trying to sell an idea. It is almost as if Griffiths is trying to say that Rana taking him back would be a personal achievement rather than doing this for personal reasons. There is no romantic gesture or apology. Anyway, I digress. Towards the end of April, Rana's neighbour, who was working permanent night shifts, would report to her that he would see Griffiths going through her bins. He was also caught taking pictures of the house at 3am without her knowing. In a separate incident, Griffiths broke one of Rana's exterior garden fences and then hours later called her 
to say that he had seen that one of her fences was broken and did she want him to repair it. Rana began telling her neighbours to call the police if they saw him in the vicinity, but this was not the only thing that Griffiths would do. He would call her constantly throughout the day and shout abuse down the phone at her one minute and then ring her back begging for reconciliation the next. He would turn up at the pub when she was there with friends. He did not interact with her, but he made sure that his presence was known. Gemma said, We didn't really take it seriously at the time. He was just very irritating. Rana was angry. She just wanted him out of her life so that she could get on with the rest of it. The problems escalated when Rana took part in a dressage competition on her horse at the Windsor Horse Show. Firstly, Griffiths ensured that he had parked his Mercedes next to Rana's so that she knew he was there. While she took part in the dressage competition, he watched via binoculars. Griffiths proceeded to take out a long lens camera and started taking pictures from up a tree. Rana was extremely disturbed with his behaviour to the extent that she asked event security to remove him. When security approached Griffiths, he managed to convince them that he was there on an official photographer capacity. So just to check out Griffiths' behaviour so far. Standing on a public highway at night, Attending and taking photos at a public event. Attending a public house to have a drink when she was there. He was being very clever with his behaviour, because individually none of these incidents were illegal. But the combination of the three was psychological torture for Rana. Rana was trying to get her life back on track, and was in the early stages of a new relationship with another man, coincidentally also called Steve. The happy and full of life Rana was starting to return again. Griffith's behaviour on the other hand was about to take a turn for the worse. After a few more incidents, Rana reported Griffiths to Thames Valley Police at Slough Police Station. He was spoken to twice about harassment throughout June 2003. Police advised Rana to keep an incident diary and also asked Rana to take a note of when Griffiths contacted her family. He decided to ignore the warnings and his behaviour started to become more threatening and intimidating. On the 21st of July, Rana Faruqi reported by telephone to the Thames Valley Police that the brake pipes on her car had been cut on the 18th of July. She had been away at a horse show and when she returned the vehicle's brakes were not working. Although there was no physical evidence which could point the police to Griffiths as being the culprit, Rana's neighbours had seen him in the vicinity of the car the day before. Three days later, on the 24th of July 2003, she physically again went to Slough Police Station 
and spoke to the police about the potentially fatal damage. Despite the background of harassment, the police broke two appointments to visit her at home. Her brother Simon said, Finally, she went to the police station and dumped the pipes on the reception desk. At last, the police took a statement. But there was no investigation, no attempt to locate Griffiths, much less arrest him. That report was passed from inbox to inbox and from officer to officer for ten whole days. By that time, it was too late. Later it would be learned that the case was passed around internally and there was no action due to holidays and maternity leave. Saturday the 2nd of August 2003 started out like any other. 23-year-old Gemma went to her father's grave to pay her respects and then spent the rest of her day planning a night out for a friend's birthday party in Oxford. Rana decided to spend her day like she did most weekends at Jennings Farm in Burnham with the true love of her life, her horse Toby. After a day at the stables, which consisted of riding and mucking out Toby's stables, she looked at her watch and it was 8.30 in the evening. It was still quite bright and warm. She decided to head back to the field where Toby was grazing to take him back and settle him down for the night. She turned to head back to the stables and there was Griffiths walking towards her. On his back he carried a holdall containing three knives, a pair of binoculars and a truncheon. In his hand, a hunting knife. She was petrified and frantically looked on her person for her phone. She found it and called 999. The operator heard her say, You're not allowed to come anywhere near me. Steve, Steve, leave me alone, leave me alone. Less than ten seconds later, the operator could hear the beginning of a struggle. The operator traced the call, and quickly dispatched the emergency services to its location. Griffiths had stabbed Rana through the heart with an 8-inch serrated blade hunting knife and inflicted at least 15 other stab wounds in an attack which indicated one of frenzy. Police and paramedics rushed to the stables. Rana was found dead upon arrival 15 minutes after she had made the call, by which time her attacker had fled. Despite the issues that Rana had been having with Stephen Griffiths, they were the furthest thing from her mind when Carol opened the door to the ashen-faced notifying officers later that night. Her heart was about to break for the second time in as many years. It's Stephen. It must be him, she told the officers through floods of tears as they took her to the police station. Once at Slough Police Station, the same one that Rana had reported the cut brake pipes incident to less than two weeks earlier, the officers informed Carol of how the horrific attack had transpired. Carol 
The post-mortem of Rana Faruqi took place on the 3rd of August and it revealed that she had died from a single stab wound to the chest. Fortunately, the death was so quick that she would not have felt the other wounds. Over the next few days, tributes were paid by Rana's friends and workplace. David Walker, managing director of the company she worked for, said, We are all devastated at the news of Rana's death. She was such a vivacious individual, the sort of individual who people love to be around. I know Rana will be sadly missed and remembered with great affection by everyone in the business. Among the floral tributes placed outside Jennings Farm stables, a number were from her friends in the equestrian world. Most poignant, though, was one from her new boyfriend, pointing out in a simple message how happy the last six weeks had been. Griffiths had gone on the run after the murder and the police appealed for information through the media for knowledge of his whereabouts. They warned the public not to approach him as he was armed and dangerous. Believing that Griffiths was heading abroad and all ports alert was issued and his name and photograph was sent through Interpol to be circulated across Europe. Finally, on the 7th of August 2003, Stephen Griffiths was found at a campsite near the village of Watlington in Oxfordshire. He had called 999 and summoned police and paramedics to the site. He had attempted to take his own life and had deep lacerations on both wrists. In the boot of his Mercedes, he still had his murder kit. It was clear that one way or another he was going to kill Rana. Griffiths had stashed a crowbar, two bow saws, a chisel, an axe, rat poison, caustic soda, syringes, a catapult, a mallet, an industrial sack, rope, a box of industrial gloves, and the base of a garden parasol, which when filled with sand, could be used as a weight. Also found in the car was £1,500 in cash, and the books titled Stalker and Unnatural Death. Griffiths was promptly arrested. He was charged with the murder of Rana when he appeared at Reading Magistrates Court on Saturday the 16th of August. He was remanded in custody to appear at Reading Crown Court on Thursday, August the 21st. At the initial plea hearing, Griffiths pled not guilty and the trial was set for December 2004. So what is known about the sadistic Griffiths? Stephen Griffiths was born in 1961 in the city of Wrexham in North Wales. He is the eldest of four children of Emmeline and Anna Griffiths, who moved from Liverpool to Tannifron. For several years, Mrs Griffiths had run the village shop. 
Stephen Griffiths, his brother, and two sisters had attended the village school before going on to Denby High School. Griffiths' trial began at Reading Crown Court on the 10th of December 2004 with Judge Mr Justice Silver presiding. The case was tried for the Crown Prosecution Service by Michael Lawson QC and Joanna Glynn QC defended Griffiths. In the interim between the initial hearing and the trial, Griffiths changed his plea to guilty. Miss Glynn QC stated in the court that Griffiths had not intended to kill Rana, but his intention was to kill her horse Toby and destroy the carriage that she used competitively in events as a way of harming her psychologically. Although the full script of Rana's 999 call was not read out in court, Mr Lawson QC said, It requires little imagination to hear those words that are recorded there and the anguish in which they are spoken. Justice Silver, in summing up, stated, When Rana Faruqi first saw you, she phoned for the emergency services, but within a short period she had been murdered. This confirms your frenzied state and the hostile attitude you were in. The judge also said that Rana could not be criticised in any way for her conduct towards the deranged Griffiths and that his defence that he was suffering from enormous stress did not go anywhere near the threshold to enable him to reduce the sentence. Justice Silber added, You simply could not accept Rana did not want anything more to do with you. Mr Justice Silber sentenced Griffiths to a life sentence but told him that he would serve 12 and a half years before he would be considered for parole. Also, because he had spent more than 16 months in custody since his arrest, that figure would be lowered to 11 years and 151 days. Let's just take a minute to take that in. Cold-blooded murder and you get a sentence of 11 years and 151 days. Understandably, the Faruqi family were not happy with the outcome. Carol's saying to a reporter, There were too many mistakes running up to my daughter's death, which may have cost her her life. Rana had already informed the police the brake pipes on her car had been cut and they didn't act soon enough. A week later, she was dead. Whilst in prison, Griffiths ended up in a relationship with a prison warden who was then fired. Griffiths was involved with other women who he had stalked but never been sentenced before. A previous victim was a teacher. He would move objects in her house when she was not there to let her know that he had visited. Carol campaigned and a misconduct investigation into Thames Valley Police led to an admission that they should have acted on the first complaint. Carol Faruqi founded the charity Protection Against Stalking. 
The charity was set up with Trisha Burnell, the mother of Claire Burnell, who was shot dead by her ex-boyfriend, Michael Petch. He shot her dead in Harvey Nichols in Knightsbridge in London. I won't go into that case much further, as I may cover that as a later date. The Farukis were one of dozens of families and victims who gave evidence at the independent parliamentary inquiry into stalking law reform. Simon said, 14 years. This guy could be out making some sort of an attempt to rebuild his life. Simon said, 14 years. This guy could be out making some sort of attempt to rebuild his life. So there's a feeling of, where's the justice in that? Where's the sense in that? Gemma also passed comment about her sister. My wedding, I would have loved her to have been there. She would have been a bridesmaid. She would have had quite a lot to say. My children, I would have loved her to have met my children. I know she would have been a wonderful aunt to them, and I know they would have adored her. If you are a victim of stalking in the UK, please call the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. That's 0808 802 03 Zero, zero. If you're a victim of stalking in the United States, please call the Safe Horizons on 1-800-621-HOPE. That is 1-800-621-4673. So that is it for this week. Please remember if you enjoy the show or want to know more, Please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. But there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also remember, the podcast is now available on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search true crime fix. If you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at true crime fix podcast at gmail.com. That's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com Until next time stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what will be coming around the next corner Take care everyone